Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com the telegraph, the telegraph. podcasts I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we speak to historian Sergei Radchenko on the Cold War, Eastern European history, Russian imperialism, and we ask how history can help us better understand the modern-day invasion of Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 6th of July, day 133. And today, I'm joined by senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant and our guest, Dr. Sergei Radchenko. But before our conversation with Dr. Radchenko... Here are the key updates from the ground in Ukraine. Ukrainian officials have called on civilians to urgently evacuate the city of Slovyansk as Russian troops press towards it in their campaign to secure the Donbass region. Slovyansk has been subjected to massive Russian bombardment in recent days, with at least two people killed and seven others wounded in an attack on a marketplace on Tuesday. Russian shelling has killed at least seven civilians in Ukraine over the past 24 hours and wounded 25 more, Ukrainian officials have said on Wednesday. Pro-Russia separatists have said attacks by Ukrainian forces have killed four civilians. The UN Human Rights Chief has said that arbitrary detention of civilians has become widespread in the parts of Ukraine held by Russia's military and affiliated armed groups. And finally, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has criticised his top general for imposing draconian travel restrictions on army recruits. Russian and European history has had a huge impact on the invasion of Ukraine, informing how nations around the world have reacted to Russia's attack. We wanted to get a better understanding of the Cold War, Russian and Eastern European views of each other, and ask whether history can throw a light on how this conflict may end. So, senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant and myself spoke to Dr. Sergei Vachenko. This is our conversation. Um, I think the best thing to do is to start incredibly broad, and then we can really go into some specifics later on. So would you give our listeners uh, just a broad understanding of modern Eastern European history from the Second World War 
World War onwards. What are the big events uh, and movements people should understand? Sure, sure. And I, I'm glad I'm glad we're not taking uh, you know thousands of years of Eastern European history because that would make my task so much more difficult. From the Second World War onwards, well, the, I mean, the interesting thing to note is that, of course, a lot of Eastern European countries today um, are. Uh, quite wary of Russia, find Russia, uh, uh, find that Russia is basically an imperialist state, uh, that it is trying to conquer and control parts of Eastern Europe. But if you go back to 1945, there was a moment there where uh, the Soviet Union at that time was welcomed as a liberator in countries like Czechoslovakia, for example. Um, But later, the Soviets... Uh, how would you put it, you know, overstayed their welcome, right? They tried to control, they tried to change the social systems of countries of Eastern Europe that that, that they came to dominate from Poland uh, to Czechoslovakia to Bulgaria, Romania, um, Yugoslavia, although Stalin then split with Tito by 1948, Albania, uh, did I miss out on any Bulgaria? So the Soviets established a, a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe and maintained their presence, often military presence, on the ground for uh, the better part of the Cold War. It was only under Mikhail Gorbachev that the Soviets uh, started to withdraw, decided to withdraw for various reasons, economic reasons, political reasons. They just felt that they could no longer sustain this occupation. But it also has you have also have to remember that in the course of this, uh, of, 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 of the Soviet control of Eastern Europe, there were also invasions from the Soviet Union of countries in Eastern Europe, notably, of course, the um, well, it might start with 19, uh, 1953 uh, suppression of the rebellion in Berlin by Soviet forces, which was, of course, followed by the brutal suppression and brutal Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956. This wasn't the end. We had the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in August 1968. And then we had the uh, near invasion, although historians disagree as as to how close uh, it came to invasion in 1981, when uh, uh, Poland was in turmoil and solidarity was asserting itself. And of course, the Soviets demanded uh, that uh, the communist leadership of Poland oppose martial law, which they did in the end. Uh, but in any case, so this whole you can you can see that that Soviet uh, uh, relationship with Eastern Europe was uh, was far from from. Um, uh, something that would make Eastern Europeans appreciate Moscow, so to speak. Uh, that's that's mildly, let's put it quite mildly. But there, of course, there, there still there were differences uh, in in the degree of uh, perhaps apprehension on the parts of Eastern of, of various Eastern European states. I mean, if you think about the Baltics, which of course were part of the Soviet proper uh, and not of the external Soviet Empire, well, those were uh, annexed outright annexed by the USSR in 1940 and experienced Soviet brutality uh, to its full extent. And of course, there's, you know, that has a certain impact on, on the way that uh, that those Baltic states view Russia today. I mean, they see Russia as, as this very aggressive imperialist neighbor, which you can, you should always keep uh, away from. 
Um, uh, other countries, like, for example, Yugoslavia, although Stalin quarreled with Tito in 1948 today, some parts, you know, obviously Yugoslavia broke up, but Serbia today uh, maintains a, a, a more nuanced approach towards Russia and indeed sees Russia as a, as a kind of a, uh, as, as a country that is ethnically close to Serbia itself and in some ways serves as, as a kind of a protector almost of Serbia in some kind of ways. So again, there is nuance. Uh, you cannot just say across the board. But the bottom line is, yeah, the Soviets definitely exhausted their uh, welcome uh, and, and the, the feeling of liberation that many Eastern Europeans had in 1945 and uh, came to be seen as uh, aggressors, as imperialists, as oppressors. And this is, this is why uh, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine today triggers uh, this sort of indignation in countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Can I just ask you, um, you've talked about how Eastern European countries and nations see Russia, as you said, an, an imperialist state um, bent on dominating them. How, how, how does Russia historically view, the, um, view Eastern Europe? Because I think this is a question which, is, which has come up a lot in, in the invasion of Ukraine. It's very much to do with how, how Putin sees Ukraine and what he understands the country to be, what, what he wants the country to be. Well, Putin is very much uh, a 19th century thinker. <clears throat> He's very much imperialist in his outlook. Uh, traditionally, there's uh, Russian rulers and you know, Soviet rulers to a certain extent, certainly up to Stalin and including Stalin, perceived security in terms of territory. The more buffer you have, as it were, uh, in the West, the more secure your own country feels from possible incursions. And of course, Russia historically experienced many incursions. Look, I I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to engage here in geographic determinism because many other countries have also been invaded over uh, millennia and uh, certainly not all of them have become hideous imperialists. Uh, but, you know, the Russians have experienced invasions from the West, including, of course, uh, Napoleonic invasion. Uh, in 1812, and then obviously there, you know, uh, then you have this First World War, the Second World War. So there is this perception that Russia is insecure along its western frontier and that it, the, the way you compensate for this is you acquire uh, geopolitical space, uh, some kind of a buffer. And this is how Stalin approached uh, Soviet security. That is why he uh, tried to annex territories and create those buffer zones. Yes, Stalin was, after all, behind the annexation of the Baltics in 1940. It was Stalin who uh, annexed the part of Romania, which later became Moldova. Uh, it was Stalin as well, crucially, who agreed with Hitler in 1939 to essentially divide Poland, wipe it completely off the map and, and separate, you know, take parts of uh, eastern Poland and make them parts of what is today uh, western Ukraine and Belarus. All of that was primarily for reasons of security, sort of geopolitical reasons of security. Here's a nuance, though, and that is very interesting. In the 19, in 1949, the Soviets tested their first atomic weapon. And then in the 1950s, you had the process that historians know as nuclear revolution, that is, coupling of atomic charges to uh, means of delivery, i.e. missiles, effectively, although bombers as well. 
which uh, created a very different dynamic for security, as it were. For the first time by the late 1950s, the Soviets, who had uh, developed an intercontinental ballistic missile in 1957, could now actually reach their probable enemy, the United States. Um, so, And then, of course, you had different other missiles that were developed, and there was a full-blown nuclear arms race, uh, so much so that by the late 1960s, the West, and essentially the United States and the Soviet Union, had enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world many times over. But, you know, you, you look at this and you ask yourself, how is that actually connected to this idea of a buffer state uh, or buffer zone that the Soviets and now the Russians still insist on having the right to in, uh, in, in Eastern Europe? And, uh, it, you know, those things do not connect, which is, by the way, why in 1990, when there was the question of the Soviet withdrawal from East Germany, which, uh, uh, which had a large number of Soviet troops, uh, uh, Gorbachev was dealing with this question. He was trying to figure out, you know, how to go about this. Uh, after all, it was, you know, East Germany was the jewel in the Warsaw Pact, the jewel in the crown. But one of his advisors, Anatoly Chernyayev, actually told Mikhail Gorbachev in a memorandum, you know, why are we so worried about Germany and whether or not we occupy East Germany? Because we have nuclear weapons. Who is going to invade us? I'm paraphrasing Chernyayev here, but who is going to invade us? So there was always this tension on the one hand between, you know, military and strategic thinkers in Russia and the Russian policy establishment who thought in terms of still very much 19th century kind of concepts of buffer states and how it's important to control Eastern Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And those who were saying, look, we're, it's, it, we're living in a different world now. We do not need this territory. Uh, and, and what we see with Putin and Ukraine is evidently those who insisted on uh, a kind of quasi-imperial control for strategic or for political or for reasons of prestige or God knows for, for what reasons. You know, th those people, those voices have obviously won out. And, uh, you know, Putin uh, was, uh, was first and foremost among them in ordering this uh, invasion of Ukraine. So let's talk about Vladimir Putin. Um, you described him just then as a 19th century thinker in terms of how he thinks about the sort of geopolitical space. But he, he is a child of the, of the Cold War. Um, he, he grows up then, he gets his first jobs, he, gets, you know, he, he does what he does, then the wall comes down. Can, can you talk a little bit about Putin's experience and, uh, and how that might have impacted his thinking and his philosophy uh, today? Sure. Well, we're all children of the Cold War. I'm also the child of the Cold War. Have very different approach to uh, to events. Of course, I was never. I never worked for the KGB. Unlike Putin, who spent his uh, formative years uh, or you know his early uh, early career in Germany in Dresden, where he witnessed the collapse of the external Soviet Empire, uh, and that of course uh, was a traumatic experience. So Putin. Well, how do we know that Putin repeatedly talked about? About this being a, a traumatic experience. The collapse of the Soviet Union was a traumatic experience. He had called it the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Um, but, you know, here's something else, and that's something interesting. If you look at the line of, of Soviet and Russian leaders up to Putin, and I find it, you know, in, in some ways quite compelling. If you think about Stalin, for example, Stalin uh, obviously miscalculated very badly in his policy towards uh, you know, Nazi Germany, 
then barely survived the, the, the what the Russians called the Great Patriotic War. The Soviet Union uh, uh, suffered colossal losses in the war. Uh, subsequent Soviet leaders, you had Khrushchev, for example, who had direct experience of the of the Second World War. I mean, he was a political commissar in Stalingrad, and his his uh, memoirs, for example, Khrushchev talks about seed pile piles and piles and piles of corpses that uh, there were so many in Stalingrad he said that they had to be uh, burned uh, because they were decomposing Brezhnev who followed Khrushchev also had uh, second world war experience uh, he was wounded um, then you had others Andropov also had second world war experience Gorbachev was a young kid by the way when the second world war uh, <clears throat> broke out and was you know, he, he experienced that as well. The area where he lived had fallen under, under German occupation. He recalls seeing uh, corpses of, of, of Soviet soldiers. Here's an interesting thing. Putin was born after the Second World War, and he's the first in the generations of, of, of Soviet leaders since Stalin who had not had the experience of this, this kind of formative experience uh, of the Second World War. And that makes me a little bit worried because, you know, for, for all of their ideological proclivities, for the need to build Marxist-Leninist, uh, Marxist-Leninist paradise and, and world socialism and whatnot, Soviet leaders were actually quite cautious in many instances. You know, when confronted, when they get themselves in situations of, of confrontation with the West, as, for example, Nikita Khrushchev did in October 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis, or Leonid Brezhnev in, um, uh, in October 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. Uh, the Soviet leaders were very keen to back out, as it were, find some kind of a peaceful exit from confrontation, because they keenly realized, they realized what a horrible responsibility was on their shoulders, because they headed a nuclear power, they knew what war was like. But, but Putin... Putin doesn't have this. You know, his experience is is very different. His life story is very different. So that actually makes me a little bit worried. Thanks, Sergei. Just one more question from me on a slightly different topic. And I know Roland is, is, has been listening to all of this. So I'm sure he'll have some questions as well. Um, one of the things I know you write about is Sino-Soviet relations. It's something we've talked about on this podcast quite a few times with our China, um, uh, China correspondent, Sophia Yan. Um, what could you sketch out for us the sort of history of, of Russian and Chinese relations in the, in the past few decades and just give your take? We'd be interested, very interested to hear your take on where they are now. Well, sure. Uh, the the relationship is uh, today is is in very good shape compared to historical trends and tendencies of of uh, Sino-Russian and before uh, Sino-Soviet relations. Uh, I guess if we were to uh, look back at the history of this relationship, maybe a good point to start would be 1949. This is the moment where China was established. Um, and, uh, of course, Mao Zedong, the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, then sought an alliance with the Soviet Union. He went to Moscow, met with Stalin, signed the Treaty of Alliance, which was supposed to be eternal and unbreakable, and yet broke up only after 10 years. I and mean, by the late 1950s, the Soviets and the Chinese were at each other's throats. They had all kinds of issues they disagreed about, whether it was the question of ideology, uh, the uh, approach towards the West, um, you know, national interests, and you know, China, the Chinese accused the Soviets of, of trying to control them. And I think, I guess the, I guess the reason, the if, if I were to to pinpoint a single reason, of course, you know it makes it a little bit uh, too too simple. But a, a very very important reasons for the for for, for the 
um, breakdown of the Sino-Soviet alliance in the late 1950s was the uh, the fact that it was rigidly hierarchical. There was a common ideology to it, uh, ideology of Marxist-Leninism, and of course, you know, if you have this kind of an alliance, you have to have to have a, you have to have a high priest who will interpret the dogma for you. And Moscow believed that this was its own role, and the Chinese were not willing to play the underdogs uh, or second uh, or the younger brothers, as it were, to uh, to the Soviets. So this kind of resentment actually helped bring the alliance to ruin. I'll give you one example that is kind of interesting for understanding where this relationship is heading today. In 1959, there was the uh, Sino-Indian border skirmish, um, which uh, in which the Soviets actually took uh, a neutral approach. They they basically were trying to have a good relationship with uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, the Indian prime minister, and uh, uh, and so they tried to stay out of this whole thing. The Chinese were absolutely outraged. The Chinese were saying, well, how can you, you're our allies, how can you be neutral? You have to support us. Well, now fast forward to the present, what we have today with the Sino-Russian relationship is a very different dynamic. I mean, they're not really an alliance. They're a, a form of an alignment where where their interests coincide, but both sides actually leave plenty of space for the other to pursue its own agendas and national interests. So, for example, if China and India were to go to war today, I don't think the Russians will try to join either side or the other. I think they will be neutral. I think the Chinese will not blame them for this because there's no expectation that there was in the 1950s with the Sino-Soviet um, Alliance. Uh, another thing, and that's also very important to th to think about when you when when you look at the broader trajectory of the Sino-Russian relationship, the relationship between Beijing and Moscow became extremely tense in the 1960s. It was so bad that the Soviets had to pull out their ambassador from Beijing, and in, in 1969, as you, as uh, our listeners will well know, uh, China and uh, the Soviet Union basically had a border war over their disputed frontier in the Far East. And then the, the Russians were uh, hinting at a potential nuclear strike against China. I mean, that is really bad. Yeah, this is bad. In the 1970s, the relationship was deeply frozen, wasn't going anywhere. And then they started to repair it gradually, but surely improving things until in 1989, Mikhail Gorbachev visited Beijing and proclaimed normalization of the relationship. And Gorbachev's, Gorbachev is usually remembered for ending the Cold War, but I think one of his most lasting, most important legacies was normalization of the Sino-Soviet relationship. On which basis? On the basis that the Soviet Union would not try to be the elder brother. When, you know, Gorbachev talked about it, he would say things like, you know, why would we want to do that? Of course, we don't want to be China's elder brother. That's ridiculous. And that sort of different relationship then allowed the Russians, uh, after the Soviet collapse, and the Chinese to build an ever closer and very profitable relationship politically and economically. Uh, now, uh, uh, China is Russia's uh, number one uh, trade partner. Russia, of course, is not up there uh, for China. Its, its economic interests are primarily in the West. But um, anyway, so you can see it's a fairly profitable relationship. And moreover, it's informed by the historical understanding that this relation, a relationship in recent memory was very, very bad. Therefore, it should be both sides should work towards uh, avoiding frictions in order to maintain the positive dynamic. Thank you very much, Sergei. Just very quickly before we bring in Roland, I'd like to ask you, you've sketched for us um, a compelling and interesting um, canvas of the history in the Cold War and the, the background to the invasion. Can I just ask you what 
following the invasion, what, what kind of what, what impact is that having on these relationships on on the world that we thought we lived in before the invasion? Well, you know, we can never escape from history. It's uh, obviously there. Historical legacies are there. You know, statesmen think in in terms of historical examples. So we have seen with Putin, for example, how he tried to legitimize uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine with reference to certain uh, 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 facts or imagined facts drawn from deep annals of history. Uh, so, So we can see how history feeds into contemporary policy making, informing it, uh, but also uh, rationalizing it in many ways. So, you know, one thing that one of the things that I've been puzzled by, that I've been trying to figure this out, I don't know how to answer this, is what, why did, why did Putin, you know, what motivated Putin's invasion of Ukraine? Was it for this issue of security, for example? Was it issue of security in the sense that he worried about NATO enlargement? He talked about it. I mean, we know he talked about it for years since, since his Munich speech, blaming NATO for its enlargement. I don't think we can kind of just say that all of this is just uh, basically an excuse. Um, but also, you know, he had this, uh, uh, he could have a, a, an imperial, a imperialistic reasons, thinking once again as a 19th century um uh, 19th century kind of you know Russian imperialist that Ukraine should be just fully integrated should become a part of Russia should be under Russian control and so when you look at Putin's and his motivation I mean if we have to weigh those uh, reasons strategic ideological reasons uh, and, and, and perhaps conclude that he was motivated by all of them at the same time but whatever we say I think it's fair enough to say that Putin himself looks to history in order to justify rationalize his uh, present-day behavior. Well, thank you very much, Sergey, for that. Roland, you've been listening to, 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 to Sergey now for 20 minutes. What are your thoughts and what questions do you have for Dr. Rodchenko? I've got a lot of questions, actually, um, and, and a lot of it, it kind of stacks up. I mean, I'm really interested in this idea about, um, you know, what you said about Putin, um, you know, and this idea of what, what is his motivation? Is he is he an imperialist who just wants to rebuild the empire? Was he, you know, really genuinely worried about NATO expansion? All of that, Um and yeah, I, I've I've long thought that you know you, those things are not mutually exclusive, right? You can justify things to yourself in many different ways, and they can conveniently kind of um, dovetail. I mean, I was going to ask, you know, talking about Putin's obsession with with history. We all know, you know, he, he's a very keen amateur historian by the sounds of things. Um, it was kind of two questions I want to ask you off the back of that, especially as a you know um, as a Russian. Um, one is, you know, are there two or three things you think? He seems to have got fundamentally wrong that if he understood about history, he, you know, we wouldn't be having this war. Um, and, and the other thing is, um, how serious do you think the kind of abuse of or um, lack of education or understanding about history in, in contemporary Russia is in, in, in contributing to that? And, um, you know, I'm talking about, you know, pub- Pobedesia and, and, and the kind of the fetishization of Victory Day, and which I think goes hand in hand with what you were saying about, you know, this is a generation who never, who do not understand the Second World War. They weren't there. They can fetishize it, but they weren't there. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, I mean, I remember I lived in Moscow for 10 years. I remember a few years ago walking into, you know, Biblioglobus in, in Moscow, and, and there's the history section. And it's just a stack of books by, you know, people by. Nikolai Stadikov about how, you know, the yeah. West has always been out to get us and stuff like that. that was the yeah. history section, right? There was no, like... Bi- biography of a 
Stalin. <laughs> right. So, 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 no, no kind of like Russian equivalent of Anthony Beaver or something like that. It was, it was, you know, you just kind of hit in the face with this stuff as soon as you walk into the, into the main bookshop. Um, so, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, let me start with this last question because, as a historian, of course, I'm I'm always fascinated by what is being published and what is available. You know, there's a perception in the West that Russia is fundamentally a closed country, and you cannot get to the bottom, you know, to the truth, as it were. Uh, what's interesting is that the archives actually have been remarkably open compared to the 1990s. I mean, I've been going to the Russian archives for decades now, uh, looking at various aspects of uh, contemporary history, the Cold War, and and I can say with absolute certainty, we have never had greater openness in the Russian archives. You can go there, you can get so much stuff on the Cold War that uh, you have an absolute, you know, an, uh, 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 um, uh, uh, flood of documents worse previously which just have a trickle here and there and try to draw your conclusions on that basis but what's interesting is there's nobody in the archives people don't go there people don't read this stuff and instead people read the what you just referred to those popular histories that present uh russian history in this glorious light soviet history in this glorious light you know stalin's the great uh, manager or uh, a good manager sometimes he's described etc and of course his various atrocities and crimes are basically not mentioned in this sort of narrative and you wonder you ask yourself why is this why has this become so important to the Russian public? I think part of the answer is, of course, this uh, uh, sense that the Russians have had uh, about uh, the about their greatness, their self, their self-perceived greatness. They want to be great. You know, it's not just about material abundance, as it were. Um, it was important to be great, to stand uh, tall and proud among the greatest of the world and say that, well, we are changing the course of world history. And that, of course, means that, uh, uh, you know, that we're getting respect, et cetera, et cetera. So the Russians were, uh, were, have always had this. They've always uh, desired recognition from the West. They always wanted to, to be legitimated by the West. You know, the question is, as what, of course, as partners or as enemies or, or just as, 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 a, as a great power. And, and that feeling remained despite the end of the Cold War. And in fact, uh, the end of the Cold War occasioned a kind of grave disappointment among many Russians, a loss of orientation, a loss of direction. People uh, did not know what to do. Russia was drifting without a purpose, without a destination. Uh, and that was, you know, that was an interesting time in the 1990s. I remember it uh, very well because I was in Russia at that time. Um, you know, sometimes uh, we say about Great Britain, or as, 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 as I think it was Dean Acheson who said of the Great Britain, that it lost an empire but never found a role. Well, you know, it's actually not true, because although Great Britain lost an empire, it did find a role for itself. It, it was a part of NATO. It uh, had, uh, uh, however... Uh, brief and inconclusive European experience, but anyway, it had. I mean, it's, it's part of the West, right? The Russians they lost an empire in 1991, but they never quite figured out what it is that they're supposed to do. And in search of that inspiration, uh, they looked to their past and found some glories, mainly uh, some you know great exploits of, of imperialists. 
um, who dominated uh, parts of Europe and Asia. And this is where Putin, the historian, comes in. I mean, Putin completely buys into this kind of narrative, sees Russia as great, uh, as, as, as this you know, country that has always had a, a, an enormous role to play in the world stage. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, he sells this narrative to the Russians and by and large, the Russians buy it, which is why he's been able to present this war in Ukraine as uh, a war between effectively Russia and the West. Uh, the aggressive West is trying to get at Russia because, you know, everybody in the West absolutely hates Russia. For what? For what? There's not, no reason to hate Russia for anything. Well, because, you know, they do not like our greatness. Therefore, they're trying to strangle us. And so, therefore, we have to stand our ground, not least in Ukraine. And that is the narrative that is, of course, patched in very much historical terms that is then presented to the Russian public. And the Russian public eat it with great delight, as it were, they just, you know, they really embrace this narrative because there's nothing, maybe they're looking for a role. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand this psychologically. I mean, after all, I am Russian, so I guess I should have uh, some kind of a better angle for which to understand it. Sometimes I do find it difficult to understand because I, I feel that this, obviously, obviously, this whole war was a huge mistake for Russia. What Russia should have really been looking for is a, a role of, uh, you know, it could project influence in Europe, it could maintain its good relations with China, it could uh, 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 it could capitalize on whatever assets it had, you know, energy, etc., etc., in order to really become a normal country. But it was not willing, it was not willing, and that's where we find ourselves today. Mm, I think, which is, which is, which is fascinating. I mean, um, I also wanted to ask, you know, as a, as a Russian, as a historian, you have this great Twitter following, and I'm an, I'm an avid follower, um, and I've been following your little discoveries in the archives. Um, um, very, very enjoyable. Can I just... No, no. Um, the, um, the, first of all, on the archives and these little photographs you take of, you know, kind of, you know, conversations between Stalin and Khrushchev or something, or um, it's stuff like that. Um, you, you say it's very open, but we, we, we do often hear that... that that the archives are closed. So could you just give us a little bit more clarity about what you're reading and where you're getting it? And is it when we hear that, oh, the, the archives were open and then they were closed, are people basically talking about Lubyanka, about the, the secret police archives? There? Sure, sure, sure. So, and there's a, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lack of understanding among people who talk about it about as, as, as to what exactly is being talked about. So there are different, different archives in Russia. Uh, and uh, uh, the the former you know, Soviet Party archives are basically quite open, so anybody can go there and study uh, uh, records of, you know, for example, the key leaders like Brezhnev or Khrushchev or or Stalin. Their materials are there; uh, they're wide open. A lot of the stuff is actually accessible online. But there are also archives that remain largely off limits, and these are intelligence archives, and of course, internal security archives, and to a lesser extent, the military archives. So the uh, declassification process uh, does not, I mean, it has obviously worked quite well compared to previous years, but it also, there are certain problem areas, uh, but I won't say that there are no problem areas in the West, you know, to, 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 to be perfectly frank there. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not so straightforward. I would just, you know, the, the only reason I mentioned that is just I find it remarkable that Russia is actually, in terms of archival access, is actually quite open country, quite an open country. And I cannot say that about the media, for example. Obviously, the press environment is extremely constrained. You cannot really criticize the government. 
Um, but uh, but the archives are there if there were only people who wanted to go and explore history of the Soviet Union or history of Tsarist Russia, they would they would find there's plenty of stuff to to uh, chew on. Uh, but uh, but people don't do this for whatever reasons. It seems that there's just you know there's just not enough interest. Uh, and of course now it's much more difficult also for Western scholars to go there for um, different reasons. Uh, uh, but in any case, Russia remains relatively more open compared to China. I lived in China for many years. And I can say archival access in China is a is a very sensitive subject. You cannot get anything, you know, absolutely nothing. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, at least this is for for historian. This is a little little something positive in the in the against the general background of of uh, really grim situation in Russia. Hmm. Um, thanks for that. Um, and, and another follow up. I'm being I'm being a historian. I'm being on Twitter. There's there's kind of there's there's two other things that interest me about you. One is the, the kind of, I don't know, I suppose the difficulties of, of commenting on the Ukraine thing in on Twitter. Um, I mean, I, I, I noticed you, you, you came in for a lot of flack. You had this Twitter thread the other day um, uh, talking about the lessons um, from the war. And one of them you wrote, you know, one of them is don't poke the bear. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of said, oh, he's a he's a Russian apologist. Um, he's, he's making excuses for Putin and victim blaming here, um, which he pushed back on. I mean, do you find it um, difficult to hold forth? And do you find that um, uh, being a Russian is now um, making it more difficult for you to 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 talk publicly? Do you think um, um, discussions have just become um, impossible at times? Well, I mean, this is a very good question. Of course, I failed uh, to see this war. Yeah, I, I could not. I did not see it coming. Uh, despite all the intelligence, like many, so many Russians, uh, much of the policy community in, in Moscow, for example, you know, who I met with and, and talked to in the days prior to the to, to the invasion, you know, nobody could believe that it would be coming. Uh, they thought it was some kind of a great game because it's just so hard to accept. It was so hard to accept that somebody could do something quite so stupid. You know, and the same the same sentiment, by the way, was uh, was extremely prevalent in Kiev. Uh, which I also visited prior to the outbreak of the war, just to get a sense by talking to um, uh, you know local policymakers and academics and so on and so forth. So when the war broke out on February twenty fourth, I was uh, I was just really seriously depressed. It was extremely difficult to accept. Uh, obviously, you know, as you can probably tell from my uh, my surname, I have Ukrainian roots. I have uh, family and friends on both sides of this conflict, and it was just so it, it, the shock, the psychological shock of this conflict was such. That I could not literally could not get off, you know, get out of the house. It was just could not get off the bed. You know, it was just really terrible. It was very difficult. Um, uh, and 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 so yeah, I mean, I, I have obviously struggled with understand with also talking about this. I mean, how do you how do you talk to Ukrainians, for example? I have uh, been talking to my Ukrainian friends, and I find it extremely difficult. Sometimes it was you know, sometimes I feel very awkward. Well, I'll give you one example. Recently, I was on a flight somewhere, and uh, there were uh, Ukrainian refugees sitting next to me on the on the airplane, and, but they were from Eastern Ukraine, speaking Russian to one another, and uh, <clears throat> you know. 
fleeing conflict and 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 I found it so difficult to talk to them yeah as a, as a, as a as a Russian of course you know obviously I spent most of my life living in the west so I'm not exactly a typical Russian but I still found it ex- extremely difficult so yeah it's a, it's a very sensitive sensitive area for me now with regard to my position on Twitter and elsewhere I'm generally quite a centrist you know I did not go from uh, I did I did not go towards extremes on either side I think that's just uh, part of being a historian because historians see uh, world uh, in, in, in its complexity in, in, in way that, for example, sometimes political scientists do not uh, because they're nuances, they're just shade, they're difficulties, they're always counterexamples to your examples and more counterexamples to those counterexamples. So as a historian, I'm, I'm just, I just cannot take extreme positions and I'm centrist. And that is why on Twitter, I'm uh, attacked for being uh, either a sellout to the West uh, and, you know, uh, with, I don't know, the American military industrial complex literally paying my salary or, you know, various you know, things like that that I hear about myself. Or, on the other hand, they, I get attacked for being, you know, sellout to the Kremlin or, you know, an agent of Putin, et cetera, et cetera. So that is an, a very interesting position to be in. But, uh, you know, I'm just an academic. And, and what, I, what I write about, what I talk about is just the kind of things that I think about and that I find difficult to reconcile in my head and I talk about them publicly and I listen to people when they have something to say you know so I've I've found uh, I have not despaired in my dialogue on Twitter I I, I actually find it very interesting and and quite amusing sometimes and tell you if I I may kind of the the obvious question to ask a historian I mean do your studies does your study of history tell you anything about how this war ends uh, yes, uh, <laughs> it's you know uh, uh, the 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 parallel that comes comes to mind is the Korean War. Uh, sadly, uh, the Korean War ended in a stalemate. And uh, look, uh, the Korean War started in 1950 with Kim Il Sung's invasion of South Korea with Stalin's backing, and then went back and forth, back and forth for a while. Uh, but then by the spring of 1951, after a few months, uh, the front line basically stabilized and it proved impossible later to dislodge. But look, you know, how many years later, decades, decades and decades later, we're still there. Um, and that doesn't mean that you know, we'll have the same sort of outcome in Ukraine because so much is still unclear. There are so many contingencies, uncertainties of war. Uh, the Ukrainians who continue to rely on Western military equipment may be able to do something on the ground with their counteroffensive. We know that their um, uh, uh, material materials are, are, are okay, they're kind of low on materials and on equipment. Uh, we know the same thing about the Russians. And, and so both sides are obviously exhausted. But it seems that neither of them actually wants to negotiate about anything at right this moment because the Russians feel like they can press and, and maybe uh, cannibalize Ukraine a little bit more. And the Ukrainians, of course, have no reason at this point to surrender uh, any of their uh, uh, territory that was so unfairly annexed or, or taken by the Russians and maybe annexed, in fact, in the coming in the coming months from, for, for what we know. So so there is there is no uh, desire to talk. But on the other hand, there is obviously a sense of 
um, being exhausted uh, in the field. Uh, and, and, and so perhaps we'll end up in some kind of a stalemate. Uh, what we know from history is conflicts like this tend not to be easily resolved and can fester and can continue for a very, 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 very long time. Uh, this is the big difference, for example, with the Second World War. In the Second World War, Hitler was defeated. He committed suicide, blew his brains out, and uh, lo and behold, the Allies uh, take Berlin, divide Germany, and establish their own kind of you know constitutions uh, uh, for the areas that was under their control. The same thing, of course, happened with Japan, with Emperor Hirohito declaring unconditional uh, surrender, and then uh, General uh, Douglas MacArthur is effectively running Japan for a number of years uh, under complete American control. We do not expect this to happen uh, to Russia. Even, you know, uh, nobody is expecting to march to Moscow. We we don't expect Putin to fall. I thought, you know, I thought when there were naive expectations early on that some somehow there would be coup against Putin. I thought, you know, that was obviously that has not happened. So we're in this for the long haul, and if we where to draw on historical examples, then the war in Korea uh, seems to be a, a very uh, sadly, sadly an interesting, interesting example that we could uh, perhaps uh, see some parallels with. Thanks, Sergey. Um, just one very quick question from me, if I may. Um, you've mentioned the word nuance quite a few times in the past um, 45 minutes you've been speaking to us. I just wanted to ask, what nuances about Russia uh, and Russian history and Russian character do you think that Western media sometimes miss? Well, we, we tend to get very polarized in debates. Uh, the, the Russian narrative about the West is that the West is on the brink of some kind of collapse or meltdown and, uh, and, and the, the Russians would just wait a little bit longer and then they'll see the West collapse, basically. Uh, but obviously, uh, that narrative that is not just Russian narrative, but it all goes back to the Soviet times as well, has been proven wrong time and again, and that is not to understate the very serious problems that we face here in the West in terms of, obviously, the economy, inflation, energy prices, and political polarization, and, and you know, all those factors, that's true. What the Russians are talking about, that is, you know, there are obviously serious problems, but this does not mean that we're on the brink of some kind of a meltdown or collapse here in the West. And um, uh, sometimes we also see simplifications as well in the West about Russia, um, simplifications about uh, about the about what the Russians how they uh, think about this war, for example, it is true that very very many Russians support this war. It is also true that many do not. There are complexities there. You know um, uh, about motivations of Russia. There are sometimes there's a tendency to see the Russians as as uh, you know, clearly imperialists that have no legitimate interests whatsoever. Uh, and while this may be true in many instances, it is also important not to completely neglect uh, issues that the Russians may have had with, uh, you know, their security concerns and so on and so forth. So that's when nuance comes in, because then you have, you kind of, you have to weigh different arguments and uh, you have to ask yourself, am I going too far in one direction or another? Yeah. And we have to be realistic. We have to be, the main thing is to be realistic about Russia uh, uh, and, and not to expect that either it will collapse tomorrow or that it will, um, uh, 
that will it, it, it will um, uh, be democratized or something like that. And also not to make wrong historical analogies. And that's another thing we, we like to do here in the West. Uh, the Russians also do plenty you know, of that as well. But, uh, you know, comparing Putin to Hitler, for example, or, or, or something like that, or, you know, or, or invoking Munich on every suitable and unsuitable occasion. Uh, we do that. It's, it's almost unavoidable. We tend to do that. But this is where nuance comes in, because then you have to ask yourself, really, you know, okay, there's some parallels to Hitler, but also there's so many different things here that uh, obviously the parallels don't actually hold up. So that is uh, that I think where uh, being a historian helps. Well, Sergey, I just ask, is there anything we haven't spoken about or anything that you think our listeners should know or understand before we before we finish up here? Well, no, I'm just very happy to have been invited, and uh, I, I'm uh, I'm just very grateful to all the listeners who uh, uh, assembled here to you know that I've had this opportunity to talk about uh, my own research, talk about history, to talk about uh, Russia and Ukraine. I think we should uh, we should continue this kind of conversations. It's good. Ukraine: The Latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.